Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners on his look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining me now is Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses, uh, who is also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security. He's part of the Crack Russia team at CNA, and he's also one of the world's leading experts on unmanned systems, especially Russia's uh, unmanned systems. Uh, Sam, always a pleasure having you on. Hope you and yours had a great weekend. Thank you so much, Margo. Uh, A pleasure uh, having you on. Before we get started, our program today is brought to you by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Sam, uh, as I said, welcome back to the program. Uh, Obviously, a lot of debate uh, and discussion around the world exactly how long this war uh, will take, uh, whether it's President Biden or Jens Stoltenberg or Vladimir Zelensky. They've all said this is going to take a long time. Um, What have we heard from Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, the head of the Wagner Group and obviously one of the inner circle uh, in the Kremlin? Uh, about how long they think this war is going to take, because the Russians really have been stepping up activity, strikes all over the country, uh, more innovative use of technology. Uh, So what is it that some of the Russian leadership are saying about how long this war is going to take? Evgeny Prigozhin gave an interview in which he said that the fight in the eastern part of the country can take up to one and a half years. And it could take up to two years for Russian forces to take control of most of Ukraine, certainly out of the Dnieper and uh, around uh, Ukrainian capital. So he's basically signaling that this is a long-term struggle and Russians are probably prepared to go all the way this entire distance, up to two years. And and, uh, does this, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, The Economist had a great piece on this, on sort of the transformation of the Russian economy uh, into a war economy. Um, There's a lot of focus on what the West is doing, um, you know, they're talking about how sanctions are having an impact. And, but at the end of the day, the economic impact on Russia has been relatively light uh, this uh, this year. Right. Folks were projecting 10 percent. It's more like a 0.3 percent uh, decline uh, in the economy. It's the Russian decline is less than uh, in leading countries like Germany, France uh, and, and Britain. Tell the audience a little bit about the dramatic transformation of the Russian economy over the last Uh, over the last year, and especially over the last couple of months, as factories are now running literally 24 hours a day producing weapons as fast as they can? Well, we're still looking at the the cascading effects of the sanctions launched last year. A lot of these sanctions would not have the immediate effect of stopping certain enterprises, businesses, and industries from functioning. But a lot of these activities initiated by the United States and Western allies have a long-term effect. And so little by little, some of the industries have been severely affected, but other industries have not. We are sometimes forgetting that despite Russia's dependence on exports from oil, it is still a relatively diverse economy and it's been getting more and more diverse since 2014. And so there's still lots of industries in Russia which have been fairly lightly affected by the sanctions and they're continuing to function. There are a lot more defense enterprises, which, as you said, are becoming more active. They're functioning uh, a lot more. They're extending their hours. Other um, industries are also joining the war efforts, both on the volunteer and, of course, on the official basis. 
Russian state media likes to report that a certain region somewhere in, uh, in Russia is launching its own drone manufacturing and drone training center as uh, a way to demonstrate that Russia's regions, Russia's hinterland, still has the industrial and high-tech capacity, for example, to manufacture light combat drones. But this also involves Russia's uh, large enterprises and its heavy industries as well. Again, we don't know the full impact of the sanctions at this point a year in. We may find out what happens to the Russian industry and its economy in two or three years. Speaking of uh, Yevgeny uh, Prigozhin, uh, the Wagner Group uh, is going to stop uh, recruiting from prisons. Uh, that's an extraordinary statement to make in a country where there are a lot of prisoners. Uh, and however bad they were, there were uh, some people who wanted to go to the front uh, instead of staying in those prisons. And then many people deciding that they wanted uh, that at least if they stay in prison, uh, their chances of survival are higher. Walk us through what this announcement potentially means. Well, it's interesting that uh, Wagner was actually one of the few Russian military formations that was making incremental advances in eastern Ukraine, but they were doing it at a horrendous human cost. They were literally throwing people at the Ukrainian machine guns. And there's a lot of articles and news stories about that, with Ukrainians actually bewildered at the utter disrespect for human life on the Russian side in those particular attacks around Bakhmut, around Solidar and Vugladar. Uh, and uh, it is probably due to the fact that Wagner reached the maximum capacity of its recruitment from prison, uh, from prisons that um, Prigozhin is going to stop doing this policy of, of basically uh, granting pardons in exchange for service in Ukraine. And as you mentioned, a lot of uh, Russian prisoners actually are probably not keen on dying that way in Ukraine. A lot of them are probably thinking they better serve their time out rather than then become uh, just cannon fodder for the Wagner group. And so this kind of uh, leads uh, to a very sort of um, uncertain future for what Wagner PMC can do in Ukraine right now if it cannot provide the Russian military with additional tens of thousands of soldiers to press Ukrainian forces. So how will Wagner actually conduct its advances, uh, how it's going to maneuver in Ukraine, what it's going to do to uh, support the Russian military. And then, of course, the undercurrent for all of that are still sort of the uncertain relationship and uncertain attitudes between Wagner and the Ministry of Defense. As far as Prigozhin's earlier statements criticizing the military, and of course, the military still kind of uh, keeping the grudge against the Wagner group. And so, uh, but that again, puts some of the Russian military advances in question if Wagner cannot provide additional forces. So this is definitely something to watch and this will probably impact how Wagner develops further as a private military corporation or company in Russia. And it may actually impact its activities worldwide as well. Um, just uh, very uh, quickly, because I want to go to the uh, unmanned uh, side of this war, which is significant in two important developments this week, as the United States copes with its own uh, unmanned aerial uh, assault, uh, more in the form of, of uh, balloons. 
uh, although although one of them is said not to have been a balloon. Anyway, um, let me just ask you real quick. Uh, some months ago, you mentioned that uh, that Putin may be trying another broader mobilization. We have three hundred thousand uh, that he conscripted. Uh, I mean, is there any sense that there is another bigger conscription? I mean, you said it could be half a million, could be two million more, uh, given at the rate that they're consuming manpower. I mean, folks are saying now it's about two hundred thousand uh, casualties on the Russian side. Um, any any more word on where the conscription picture is going, how Russia addresses this manpower gap? Well, not at the moment. Um, what you were referring to was my discussion of some of the Russian military experts inside Russia and some of its more respectable uh, non-government organizations who support uh, Russian forces in the Donbass saying that 300,000 may not be enough for an actual advance against Ukraine. 300,000 forces that were conscripted is enough to strengthen the lines and to sort of maintain the status quo and to replace the initial losses. But in order to advance, Russian military may need hundreds of thousands more soldiers. And if it's going to use tactics just like Wagner, if it's going to just launch human waves and continuously press Ukrainians until they retreat because they run out of bullets, they need a lot more bodies. And so the question is, where is Russia going to get this additional massive military force? And most importantly, how is it going to equip the force with weapon systems? How is it going to train such a force, uh, whether there's enough time and enough resources in Russia to do that? But again, um, Prigozhin's statements are probably uh, reflective of uh, what some of the uh, Russian generals within the MOD and within the government are also probably thinking that this is a long-term war and a long-term war of this kind requires continuous supply of soldiers to the front. Uh, and uh, bring us up to speed on the front. Uh, there was an unmanned surface vehicle uh, attack suspected uh, by the Russians against Ukraine. Walk us through uh, that strike, what we know about it, and what do you think it means? Over the weekend, there was uh, a number of videos posted of a bridge uh, in the Odessa region attacked by what it looked like an unmanned surface vessel. In other words, something was approaching the bridge um, on the water and then exploded right under the bridge. And so there's a lot of speculation that this could be an uncrewed surface vessel, a USV. Russia has a number of USV projects uh, in the works. Uh, they are probably not ready for military combat. They weren't really stress tested. Uh, Russia does have one a USV project advertised recently which was actually advertised as a joint Russian-Iranian project. Basically, it's a, it's a civilian speedboat, which is converted to a military USV with guns and explosives. But a country that does have experience with uh, uncrewed surface vessels is Iran. And Iran has not only been advertising its own USV capability in different maritime drills and exercises, Iranian Houthi allies in Yemen have been using some sort of a USV against Saudi targets as well. So if this is not a Russian USV attack, this could actually have been, for example, an Iranian USV that was transferred to Russia um, to augment Russian um, unmanned capability uh, acquired earlier with uh, UAVs. So it's not exactly clear what exploded. It's not exactly clear its origin, but there's a lot of speculation about that. Uh, 
Uh, and we should point out, right, that the Ukrainians have very effectively used unmanned surface vehicles uh, in their in their own right uh, to uh, uh, damage uh, Russian ships uh, and uh, and and sink one, uh, if I'm uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, talk to us a little bit about the mysterious death uh, of a uh, Luhansk drone maker uh, from the Russian uh, side. Uh, who some believe, uh, you know, messed with karma and paid the ultimate price. Well, this is a, uh, a very uh, bloody kind of war story about Igor Mangushev, who was one of the officers in the Lugansk Republic fighting against Ukraine with the Russians. He was very prolific in acquiring and advertising small quadrocopter use in Ukraine by Lugansk, Donbass and, and Russian forces. He was a nationalist. He uh, had a lot of videos. He had his own Telegram channel. On one of the videos, he was seeing brandishing a skull, and he claimed that this was a skull of a Ukrainian uh, soldier uh, that he basically acquired in combat. And a lot of his fellow uh, Donbass fighters, a lot of his fellow Russian uh, Telegram uh, correspondents were uneasy with that. They were saying that uh, an enemy should be left on the battlefield, an enemy should, shouldn't be mutilated. And so when Igor Mangushev was shot in the head, assassination style recently, dying from injury shortly after, a lot of these Telegram channels actually said that this is karma that came back to uh, hit Mangushev in the head and that despite it all, a war is war and an enemy should be respected. So uh, his wife actually made a, a, um, a tearful pledge on Telegram also asking um, Russian services to find those responsible. It's not exactly clear who carried this uh, assassination. Uh, there were a lot of rumors about him running afoul of the Wagner people. Uh, it could have been anybody. But um, he was, again, one of the people sort of on the front lines advertising how quadcopters are used, advertising how Donbass forces are fighting. And so his assassination is certainly... A message, and it's certainly a very strong signal. And and one last thing, uh, Sam, uh, before you go, because obviously there's a lot of speculation, right? Four unmanned uh, craft, uh, you know, one or at least a couple balloons. Uh, one a clearly a reconnaissance balloon. The others, we don't know what they were. They were sort of objects. Um, you know, what does the Ru what do the Russians have in their inventory that falls into this near space category? Because everybody's assumption is that they're Chinese. They could be Chinese, but also could be Russian as well. Well, Russia does have a number of balloons in its inventory. In fact, uh, balloons as surveillance uh, uh, mechanisms were used extensively during the Cold War by, by all sides. Uh, obviously, the use of balloons for uh, ISR goes back to World War II as well. Uh, so while Russia may have a number of such systems in its arsenal, we haven't actually used, or sorry, we haven't seen its active use so far. Uh, in combat like Syria or in combat like Ukraine. That doesn't mean that they're not keen on using it. It's just that um, we haven't actually seen it um, advertised or even tested uh, in their inventories. Uh, indeed. And I would say uh, from a surveillance standpoint, I guess it goes a lot farther back, right? I mean, at least the Civil War, uh, if not even sooner than that, once the two Parisian brothers figured out that they could 
um, you know, get, get high enough off the ground to be able to see far. Anyway, thanks so very much. Always a pleasure having you on the program uh, and look forward to having you back on uh, again next week. In the meantime, have a great week. Thank you, Bible. And a word from our sponsors, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air warfare coverage. And joining us now is my good friend, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, who joins us most Mondays uh, to take a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bago. Uh, indeed, the pleasure uh, is all mine. Uh, another great uh, series of notes. Uh, you know, House is on reset, Senate uh, at work uh, still. Um, I want to, before we get to the week ahead, I want to kind of look at the, the past week. Uh, obviously, we had the State of the Union uh, address, but uh, I would say as importantly, we had a spate of balloon incidents. Uh, four of them uh, now uh, that have resulted in the downings of various forms of air uh, vehicles. First one confirmed to be a reconnaissance, Chinese reconnaissance craft off the Carolina coast, uh, but also three more, uh, one over Canada, one over, Ala or I should say, one over Alaska, over Prudhoe Bay, one over Canada, and now one over Lake Huron, chalk three up to F-22s, one to an F-16. Um, and, and a lot of this is We've dialed in the radars. We now know what we're looking for. Uh, we're in a state of hypervigilance. How are you looking at the entire, um, at, at all of this? Uh, you know, some are saying this is, these are precursors to an impending Chinese attack, uh, right. which I think people think is a little overwrought. Um, you know, what's what's your sense on all this and how we should be thinking about it? Well, just the point. I mean, if we're dialing in our radars now, so I think this has been going on for a while. That's my hunch. Um, it, you know, where do you draw a line on a weather balloon? And obviously, meteorological data is critical if you're doing strategic strike. So I kind of look at this as, you know, from my perch, you know, the two questions, well, how is this going to affect the defense spending debate in the United States? And if anything, it's kind of put another couple of steel beams <clears throat> underneath defense, uh, particularly among some of the GOP members who may have been looking to cut defense um, as a, you know, now, now we're seeing the the kind of fallback. It's like, oh, well, we can cut the civilian workforce or whatever. But I think that dialogue is changing a little bit. Uh, and then the other thing, and I just don't know yet, I don't see anything right now. <clears throat> what does this mean? Are there new business opportunities that are going to come as a result of this? New surveillance technologies, you know, do you put more into northern uh, North American air defense, for example? Right. Too soon to tell, you know, that may miss a budget cycle, but it could be interesting in congressional markups and, you know, just kind of where this thing goes. So I, I my, my gut is this has been going on a lot longer than the recent incidents may suggest. Um, and it's not a new phenomena. Um, there are some valid reasons to use balloons. I think I've talked about this. You know, it's it's another resiliency that China and frankly other countries, including the United States, could add to their uh, their satellite systems. But um, but you know, I, I'm I don't I I think ultimately it's kind of a, a too soon to tell. Does it really change? Uh, you know, new areas of spending that are going to counter this particular threat. Or, um, I, I, our, our own balloons 
<clears throat> and her own capability, because Google, for example, had, you know, had a, a pretty significant program of this a couple of years ago that right. they, they take forward. Um, I, I would uh, point out, right, uh, like so much other Cold War infrastructure, NORAD, I think we came to regard as, uh, you know, kind of Cold War. And uh, we've heard from General Van Herc, the uh, commander, uh, the NORTHCOM commander, you know, that he does need uh, investments uh, in uh, infrastructure. Um, and uh, so it's, it's, it's fascinating how these flows and what we prioritize and what reminds us basically of some basics, right? I mean, fundamentally it's the sovereignty of the country. Uh, and now we, we discovered that some of these uh, balloons and, and again, mirror imaging, right? We don't have those kind of balloons. Obviously space systems are better. And then you realize your adversary is, is actually investing and has created a national program uh, in, in order to use uh, this kind of a capability, right? It's cost, yeah, the cost fog with this are not material right now, but it is, you know, you kind of get back to this, come on, you're, you're using eight, nine X missiles and F-22s you know, there are multiples of the cost of these balloons. So at some point, you know, do you need another simple North American air defense interceptor that can take these things out if this is the future? Because it's not just going to be us, it's going to be other countries as well, too. Um, you know, once again, you're kind of using a, a very exquisite asset for what would appear to be a very uh, easy to defeat threat. And right. some opportunity comes out of that, too. Uh, and I would commend people to check out Chris Buckley's uh, story in the New York Times, uh, where, you know, the China, you know China's uh, top airship scientist said that he sent one of these uh, craft over the or over North America in 2019. And it's, it's a fascinating story to give a little bit of insight on the, uh, the Chinese program. Um, you know, you said uh, budget uh, debate, obviously, House is out of session. Uh, Senate is is at work. You've been doing a little bit of budgetary handicapping here. You know, anything over the last uh, week in the wake of the balloon incident, in the wake of uh, the president's State of the Union address that, that changes your forecasting uh, for uh, the outlook for the budget continuing resolution, you name it. No, I, that, I mean, debt I ceiling. Yeah, you talked about it with Michael on the Friday show. You know, I, I haven't heard any any firm number. I mean, I think at, at the very least, you know, the re, the plan for FY24 was about $30 billion over the FY23 request. Um, you know, the munitions accounts are going to get plussed up. We kind of know that, you know, but those don't tend to be big numbers. And I suppose the real question is, so how much could get feathered in for inflation? You know, and does the administration once again send a budget over <clears throat> knowing or, or hoping that Congress will be able to add money, uh, you know, it's another lever quite quite bluntly to, to you know, kind of drive this defense and non-defense discretionary debate. Um, and I'll say a footnote, Vaga, you know, one of the interesting things last week was a House Armed Services Committee hearing on the defense industrial base. And it was discussed during that hearing that, um, you know, the labor shortages, the, the materials issues, supply chain, all this other uh, risk that defense faces a lot of the federal programs are funded out of the non-defense discretionary budget. So you're back into this linkage that I think is going to be really important as this budget debate plays through in FY24. And, and what were some uh, big takeaways? I mean, obviously, our mutual friend Eric Fanning uh, was there, among others, uh, testifying. Obviously, he's with Aerospace Industries Association. But what were some other sort of key takeaways from your perspective from that 
uh, session, right? I mean, we, it seems as though we're rediscovering the importance of industrial base. That's been uh, sort of an evolving message. But what were some of the other things that jumped out at you? Yeah, we're, we're rediscovering. I mean, I was I was fascinated by the number of questions about why don't we have a commercial shipbuilding industry? Um, well, yeah, because, okay, we have Jones Act ships, but um, we're not remotely competitive with what Japan, Korea, even Europe has been able to do. And a lot of that has been state subsidized. So um, it, it's, it was an interesting hearing because like a lot of these house hearings, they really range over a whole set of, of issues that, um, that I, I think, you know, it was a good shaping hearing. Uh, you know, you kind of want to see how this gets followed through once the FY24 budget is submitted. And then again, how some of this will reverberate back through the debt ceiling and and, uh, and budget debates. And I just, uh, I mean, I have to believe we're going to start the fiscal year with a continuing resolution. I just think that's consensus. You know, the idea of a full year continuing resolution for the federal government is just madness um, from my standpoint. But, um, you know, as you guys keep talking about on the on the Friday show, we're going to be talking about this for a long time without, without a, a real good fix on how it's all going to play out. You know, following uh, in that theme, some in Congress, Byron, want a 4% tax on share buybacks. What would the impact of a move uh, like that be, right? I mean, the likelihood of it passing is, is small. Uh, and every once in a while, right, lawmakers think they've got a clever solution to a problem that only makes things worse. I mean, how, uh, you know, what, what would the impact of that be? And why would that actually be a bad idea? Because ultimately, the companies should invest. But then again, there's really no incentive. You know what I mean? I mean, at the end of the day, this is incentivizing. This is moving the cheese, right, uh, to get the right outcome. I think I just, look, at the end of the day, the problem isn't the share buybacks. The issue is that companies have a lot of free cash flow. And on the, the point I made the note is like, well, you know, if you if you don't, if you think you're reinvesting in your business at adequate levels, and that can be debatable, um, if you're closed out from, from mergers and acquisitions and you're not going to diversify in a commercial markets, so what do you do with the excess cash? I mean, if if it's the will of Congress to try and make share buybacks less attractive, big deal. The companies will just turn around and offer larger dividends as another way to get cash to shareholders. Now, <clears throat> this gets down a rabbit hole, but you know, from an individual or from a from, from a lot of shareholder standpoint, um, the buybacks are more preferable because in theory, you're increasing their share of ownership if they hold on to their right. And they're not taxed. You know, dividends are taxed um, if you're an individual and, and buybacks are not. Uh, so it, it gets into finance theory, but you, you don't solve the problem of what companies do with excess cash by taxing share buybacks. You, you just you maybe push it more into dividends. But, you know, if the fundamental question the department is facing is, are these companies really investing enough uh, to sustain the business, to attract and retain people? Um, you know, are they being creative enough? You know, to me, if, if a company wants to buy back stock, that's fine. That's their choice. You've written contracts. They've earned those profits. They should be able to do whatever they want to do with it. If you don't think that they're using their capital wisely, then you better start rewarding companies who you believe are <clears throat> investing in taking risk and pushing the ball forward. 
Um, let me uh, take you speaking about pushing the ball forward. Uh, you've addressed margin data from the defense group over the past year. What are uh, the key findings as companies report? Yeah, I think it was really just looking at some of the defense segments back to 1980. And, you know, there's some caveats here. I also looked at research development and then capital, capital expenditures or percent of sales. <clears throat> you know, there's been a modest upturn in R&D as a percent of sales and CapEx as a percent of sales. I don't know how much more that changes going forward. Um, we're not going to get back to the levels, I don't think, of the 1980s. You know, these are different companies, consolidated industry, et cetera. Uh, the margins, you know, Boeing has been an outlier with operating margin. They've <clears throat> they've stabilized. Um, they didn't take a big swoon um, in in twenty in two thousand twenty two, and I think you know that's probably a decent sign that yes, there are some inflationary pressures from materials and and wages that companies are paying, but uh, no no one's kind of remarking their forward <clears throat> margin assumptions or their 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 workarounds. I think that companies see to to sustain some of these operating margins. Not to say that there won't be pressure, but there are some offsets that companies are going to look for too in terms of uh, you know their own internal efficiencies, um, where some of these investments might help them uh, reduce capital. Uh, expenditures that would lower their depreciation expense. So I think, you know, I guess the flip of that, I would not expect significant margin increases going into 2023 and beyond. Uh, it's just kind of the nature of the beast. So when you look at this over a very long time horizon, <clears throat> you know, you can see this is a fairly range bound uh, operating margin that a typical defense contractor could earn. Uh, and uh, a look at the week ahead, Byron, right? Very, very uh, busy one. Bipartisan Policy Center uh, has a debt event. Uh, and of course, we have the big, the Verkunda Tagung or the Munich uh, Security uh, Conference uh, coming up and then uh, a big NATO meeting. Walk us through the week and what people should be paying attention to. Yeah, and I think those two, you know, the Ukraine, uh, it's going to be front and center at Munich and in Brussels. There's another Ukraine contact group uh, meeting. Um, Aero India is going on, which I think is interesting because the Russians are going to be there displaying aircraft. So again, it just kind of drives home this notion that uh, they're having workarounds and they are not as isolated, I think, as maybe people ex think they are <clears throat> from a global standpoint. Saab Group is doing their Capital Markets Day on the 14th. <clears throat> and this is probably off the radar screen for a lot of people, but um, Columbia University is doing a full day conference on today's geopolitical competitive landscape. And that's in honor of the late Robert Jervis. That's going to be on Friday. Uh, but it looked like a pretty interesting uh, lineup of speakers and maybe, you know, a little bit more reflective than kind of, you know, what we deal with every day and week, which is the, the kind of the, the short term things. I think this is going to be a conference that will look at the bigger what, what's really going on kind of from a global system and how, how is that going to change uh, the security environment in the next five to 10 years. And uh, I should point out that you are a graduate of uh, the original King's College, uh, right, in the United States. So, yeah. um, you know, but it's I, I, you know, you know, I like the Upper West Side. Yes. Yeah. Who doesn't, alas, as an Upper West Sider, I would say. Uh, excellent. Well, well played, Byron. Uh, and uh, for those of you who know, both of us went to George Washington University uh, for our undergrad. So, so it's a lovely neighborhood, too. 
Uh, exactly. Foggy Bottom is beautiful as well. Fargo, one other thing to keep an eye on is uh, the International Institute of Strategic Studies is releasing their military balance 2023 on February 15th. It's going to be really interesting to see what their uh, assessments are of the inventories of kit in Europe, um, how the war is going. But I, I, I'm really looking forward to their their work and their assessment of of the military balance. And we'll have them on uh, soon uh, to discuss it because it's absolutely a highlight uh, of the year. They just do amazing, uh, amazing uh, work. Uh, Byron, thanks so very much. Really appreciate it. I hope you have a great week and already looking forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot, Fargo.